Welcome to Season 2 of the Week Pastor Podcast, where we view Christianity through the lens of vulnerability. Hey, welcome to the Week Pastors Podcast. We are so grateful that you have joined us here on episode... I don't even know what episode this is. We won't even say it because it might not be what episode I'm saying. Right? We might have to scrap the episode, so don't say that. Oh, we might sometimes have to we record it. things. I want everyone to know, full disclosure here, sometimes mm. we record full episodes and then we're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> we got to redo. Let's put something, it in the garbage. It's usually because it's something that I've said that was very inappropriate. So Sue was like, we got to scrap this. We're going to get hate mail. So I was like, okay, fine. We'll scrap it then. So anyway, exactly. it's usually my fault, not Sue's fault. But how are you doing, Sue? Are you doing well? Yeah, I'm doing well. I got Good. an alert for something just now. I'm trying to close them. So okay. It All right. Us. Well, listen, we have a really uh, a great episode that I want to talk about. It's kind of deep. I don't know if everyone's going to fully get it. We hope you guys can track with us uh, because I think what we have to share and kind of discuss today is, is really something that we need to be more open towards uh, just as we look at power. And so we're going to talk about that. But before I do it, before we do that, I want to ask a question, Sua, to you. And I think this might be hard for you, but uh, this one, unfortunately, is not so hard for me. Uh, so when was the last time, give us an example when you were actually pretty selfish. You did something without thinking about the other person. You thought more about yourself and uh, you were just kind of selfish. All right. And maybe your husband said it to you. Maybe your kid said it to you. Maybe a friend said it to you. Maybe a church member said it to you. Maybe your brother said it to you. Your mother said it to you. I don't know what it is, but they said that was you're a pretty selfish person. How about you go first? Because I mean, okay. I have to think about it. Not because there's right. none, but I just I don't think about these things. Well, on a I mean, daily Sue, basis. I mean, I mean, have you ever said no to John when he wanted to, you know, get physically intimate with okay, you? Why? Why could be selfish? Pastors, I mean, I don't know. pastors podcast anyway. turning okay. into a sex podcast. Right. Well, I'm just, I'm just trying to give you some suggestions because like maybe for he's you, the, that maybe that's an instance hard. of him being selfish, <laughs> not me being selfish. <laughs> okay, you know? okay, okay, okay. We'll, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll unpack talk, that if that's, we'll if that's one. That. Okay. Yeah. All right. So for me, there was a time my daughter, she works at the H, uh, she works at a pharmacy. It's called Little Ferry Pharmacy. And it's right by the, it's right by the H Mart complex in Little Ferry. And so like during lunchtime, she'll go there, she'll buy like some chips, she'll buy some things and she'll bring it home. And uh, this was in the summertime. This was actually not too long ago. And she bought like my favorite, favorite Korean chip. Do you know what it is? What is it? Honey butter chip. Oh, gosh. I mean, honey butter chip. When that came out in Korea, nobody was able to get their hands on it. I mean, honey it. butter was a sensation. Oh, man. What honey was this? Like butter. 2000? I want to say it was like 2000. I, I, I just remember my friends in Korea, they would go and they would look for it and they couldn't find it. And this yeah, one guy, one of my friends, he ended up getting a whole box. He oh got a gosh. whole box of it. Could have sold those on eBay. No, seriously, seriously. So honey butter chips. If you guys have never had that, you need to go to H Mart and you need to get yourself a bag of honey butter okay, chips. Some of us it's... don't have H Marts around us. I feel like you're being extremely <laughs> Columbus, demographically. Ohio. I mean, geographically. Specific. Sorry, but okay, if you're in a I if you're offense. in a big city, uh, there's quite a bit of H Marts. Like if you're in the West Coast, you're in LA, California, anywhere, Texas. There's tons of H Marts. Why so, Ohio anyway, is not anywhere? Ohio, we don't yeah, have an H Mart. Well, you, yeah, Ohio. They just but there wouldn't be a need can, to be. You can to probably order them from Amazon. You can. You probably can. And it's it's a premium. It's still expensive in H Mart. So my daughter brought this potato bag of potato chips at home, and um, I saw it, and you know I opened it up, 
I knew. Did you ask her? No, no, I didn't didn't ask her. No, no, no. Of course I didn't ask her. What do you mean? Of course you didn't ask her. Well, I I just, she wasn't around. She wasn't around for me to ask. So I was hungry. And you know, those things you think you can control yourself. What, was she in Siberia? You couldn't text her and ask? Was she unreachable by phone? (laughs) No, no, I didn't want to say this. I'm very upset for her right now. I'm already upset. This is a selfish part, all right? Listen, I'm her father. I could do what I want, all right? Wow. But anyway, wow. so I opened it up and I'm just like, I'm going to just have one or two, like one or two. And I just couldn't. I had the whole bag. I ate the whole thing. And it, like, that, that's not okay. That's <laughs> and she, so not okay. And then she comes downstairs. She goes, oh, what, ha- what happened to my chip? What happened to my <laughs> chips? And I told her, I was like, oh, sorry, honey. I ate the whole bag. And she just that's looked at so me like, not okay. dad. And, you know, because she's such a sweetheart, she just kind of laughed. She didn't get angry at me, and I'm just so grateful for that. But uh, but that was a pretty selfish moment. Um, those honey chips, the honey butter chips. But it doesn't seem they, like there's, you there's have any like actual remorse. Like, all you, your emphasis I, I, right now that, is that completely on... That was the sad un- part. Yeah, it's, it's like on how just, good the I, chips I, were, not on how bad just, you felt. I just, I just lost control. I mean, it was just so good. I couldn't stop. And, you know, she knows how good it is. And so, you know, I think she just kind of understood. But uh, you know what? Now that I think about it, you're making me feel bad now. So I have to, maybe I'll go and buy her a few bags of chips before she goes to college. Also, I just want the maker of the honey butter chips to know that we're open to sponsorships. So if you... <laughs> Listen, for my for those who are listening, if you've never had a honey butter chip, go on Amazon, oh order one bag. Don't worry about how much it costs, especially if you can afford it. Try it and let me know what you think because there is no chip in America that could even come close to a honey butter chip. There is something about the savory and the sweet together. That exactly. That is just really good. And it's like they use real butter. I mean, it's just you can taste the butter. I mean, oh, like geez. what doesn't taste good with butter? Everything tastes good with butter. So, so crazy. Honey butter chip. I feel very terrible. It, I saw that bag and I was like, get in my belly and all of it. I just wanted a few and all of it got in my and belly. And you so. never bought her a new one after that? No, I that? felt terrible. Well, oh she goes gosh. there worse. I mean, she could just go and pick it up herself. So, you know, it takes me, you know, I mean, actually, I do only live about a block away from an HMR, so I could, technically, I could have gotten Stop one Stop bragging. God. I know. Stop bragging. I can walk to HMR from my house. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, uh, let's go, uh, Mother Teresa. Yeah, Share no. with me your, uh, a selfish moment. Maybe, you know, I think I have to just become a little more self-aware about these things because there are obviously incidences when I'm super selfish, but when, when you put, put me on the spot like this, like I can't just like come up with one. Um, I, w- I wish we could just call John and be like, hey, John, can you share a moment when your wife was selfish? He's too scared. Oh, man. He's too scared to answer honestly because, you know, the wrath of, you know, the crazy wife will come out. But um, I will tell you, if, I mean, okay, so one thing is I think it's, it's – I live in a stage of my life right now that I think is particularly not conducive to selfishness because my hmm. kids are so young. Um, and so I think when my kids are older or if you asked me before I had kids, I think I had a lot more selfish tendencies. I could mm-hmm. be like, oh, definitely. But I think just – because my job right now is a stay-at-home mom and my kids are so young, it's one of those like life stages that it's it's really hard to be. Yeah. And actually, that's one of the big problems of, I think, stay-at-home moms is that you end up not prioritizing yourself yeah. and then you kind of implode at certain points. So, so actually, I do think it's very specific to my life stage where I forget 
to be selfish or I forget to prioritize certain things for myself because I'm so used to just doing things for my kids. Yeah. And then at some point I'm like, wait, when's the last time like I did something that I wanted to do or ate something for dinner that I wanted to eat or went to a restaurant that I wanted to go to? Like you just don't because you just kind of default to whatever your kids want or you say, well, my husband's working, so he should he's been working all week, so he should get to pick what we eat. And then you kind of forget about yourself. Hmm. But I'll tell you a funny story. When we used to live in New Jersey, now Costco food court takes credit cards, but there was a time when Costco food court only took cash. Okay. I don't know if you remember this. No, I don't remember that. Yeah. So they used to only take cash. And of course, being the millennials that we are, the geriatric millennials that we are, we never have cash. Do you carry cash? Of course I carry cash. Okay, I, I never carry cash. cash. I mean, now I do, but yeah. back then I never carried cash. It was always <laughs> credit carding everything. A dollar gum at the corner market. Oh my gosh, they probably freaking hated me. I bet you those bodegas, when they saw me coming around the corner, they were like, this bee. Like <laughs> with her credit card this charging of 99 cents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dentine gum or whatever. So anyway, we would go to Costco. And of course we wanted to order like a pizza or something and we never had cash. Mm. So this particular same thing happens. We, it's me, John and Lila, I think maybe was two at the time. Mm-hmm. Like it was pre Audrey. Um, we go into the food court and we're like, man, we could really use a slice of pizza, but do you have any cash? Of course, neither of us had any cash. So we go to the car. We're like, maybe we have some quarters. So we go to the car and we found only enough quarters to buy one slice of pizza for <laughs> the three of us. Goodness. So we are like, good, at least we can get one. So we buy the slice of pizza and then we were like, you know, we're really hungry and she's only two. What does she really know? So John and I ate the pizza and we gave her the crust. Oh, 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 I love it. That is a wonderful story. And we were like, you know, she has many days to live compared to us. So we ate the pizza and then we gave her the crust. Savage. That is so not maternal. <laughs> that is like, that is like, you've broken the mom code. Yeah, but man. look what happened to me now. Dude, it's like, like, where have I gone wrong? Dude, that's, that's, that's so cool of you. I can't believe you oh, did oh, that. Th- that. Okay, is, I'm sorry. Can that I is so say, unlike you. Is this a kingdom value? Like, are you <laughs> it's, so like impressed I, by you know me? What? It's of all so the things out- you could be impressed Dude, by, I'm so impressed right now because you are. That's so that that had to be John precipitated. Uh, John had to have initiated that. Oh yeah, of course. There's no way you. But I went along that. with it. I was like, yeah, that okay. sounds right. Okay. He was okay. like, she's only two. <laughs> she has many days in which she can enjoy pizza. But you know, us, we're like in our thirties. Like, we might die soon, oh, so we should enjoy daughter. this heavenly slice of cheese pizza and give her the crust. And you Let's, know what? She doesn't know any better. And you know, I just want to say, Costco crust is pretty good. Yo. <laughs> Sua, listen, Sua, my respect level for you mean? has gone up at a different, <laughs> it's a different echelon now because I just never knew you had that kind of evilness in your body. I never, like, I, I'm sure John is the one who, who said, let's do this. But I would expect you to be like, we can't do that. I, I mean, this really is our daughter. Hungry. She's a child. Really we have hungry. better self-control. We have more self-control than her. She needs pizza. Like, that's what I would expect of so you. But basically, the fact that you said, okay, we'll okay just the point of my story was I have since then grown and evolved as a person and I would never do that. But I feel like the way you're praising me on that, maybe it's re- the reverse. Like, I need to reclaim it's some so of that unexpected. savage selfishness. That is so know? savage. That is so savage, yeah. man. 
Yeah. And now she eats like three slices of pizza in one sitting. So, I mean, (laughs) once again, it's true. Like she has many days to enjoy because, you know, kids, their metabolism is amazing. You know, they can eat whatever they want. Yeah. Even those of us who don't grow very much, um, like in our family, we still can. I I just want to understand. Like, I would love to. um, I just want to understand. What is so weird about this? We were hungry. Like, listen, you know, I'm a, I have loose morals, right? You know, I'm a little Mm. jack, little messed up myself. But I would never do that. Like, I could never <laughs> oh, imagine I'm sorry. Myself. Are you judging me right yeah, now? Yeah, I am judging. I feel like, like you're judging like, me. You have one up me. I don't know if I can, like, if my daughter was two years old and she was hungry and I was hungry and my wife was, like, I would just, like, I think I would say, and this is me just being honest, I'll just say, you know what? I'll just wait till I get home. You guys eat the no. pizza. Don't worry about it. Go for it. What's at but home? The fact that you, What's waiting at home? <laughs> Anything, but the fact that you ate the pizza with your husband, I'm sure yeah. like you were sharing, right? Take a bite, no, of take course, a bite, take a bite, take a bite. Oh, here's the crust. Let's give it to her. Oh, yeah, I can never be selfish goodness. like that. Golly, that's yeah. that's something yeah. special. That's something special. She really enjoyed that crust. I just want to okay. say, no, for the and, record, and, she looked so, really happy, chomping away. She doesn't on that know crust. any better. She's only yeah. two. She's not gonna. She got the the bad end of the stick there. So that's really cool. But okay, yeah, and that go. is what power does. That is what power are we does. And that's now what we're going to talk okay. about today. Right. We're going to talk about when we have power. And here's the thing like, uh, you know, whenever we talk about power, I think for those who don't have power, they can talk to people who do and they can say, hey, give it up. And I think in theory, that's, that's good. And, and in many situations, it's correct. But the reality is, is that when you have power, it's very hard to give it up. I don't know. Do you agree with that? Does that resonate with you at all? Like that Costco example? Like Why do we keep bringing you back guys the Costco use example? your power to benefit you two instead of your daughter, right? Because <laughs> you had all the power. There is nothing. If she had power, you would think twice, be like, oh, I don't know if we could do this. Like if he did it now, there's no way you'll get away with that, no, right? I feel like because she had some power, we still at least gave her the cross. Oh. We could have just been like, wait no, till you get no. home, but we gave her something. Oh my goodness. You guys, the crust is delicious. Yeah, Some crust, would say that the crust is the best part. So my mother, maybe actually my I gave her the prefer. best part. Oh, goodness gracious. Now you're just <laughs> rationalizing this. No, but, but, I, yeah, but, but I'm to answer to, your question. Yeah, go go for it. I think for me, in my opinion, you so a lot of people who have power, the whole thing about it is that you don't realize you have power. Right. Like in that case, yeah, you're right. Like maybe there was a part of John and me that was like, we really want to use this example. It was like a conscious thing. Like, oh, what could she possibly do to us? You know, she doesn't yeah. know any better. Yeah. But then yeah. in many other cases, I feel like we don't even realize we have power. And that's what's so scary about it. Like, would you agree or disagree? No, I, I do. I, I do agree with that. But I think in, in, in many other cases, though, I think people do know they have power. Like, let me just give you some examples. Yeah, give me like, an if example. you are... If you are the CEO of your company, mm-hmm. you have a lot of power, all right? And if there are other people that are coming in um, and all of a sudden, uh, like say you, your company goes public and now you don't have as much power anymore because there's a board of trustees now that have a lot of power as well. And now you have to in many ways share or give up your power. I mean, in theory, it sounds like it's not a hard thing to do, but when you have power, it's actually very difficult to give it up. And I guess one of the best examples I can give of this is simply, you know, like when we talk about racial justice, you know, and you know, we haven't really had a podcast that really focused on this. But 
we as minorities, you know, like you and I as Korean Americans, it's easy for us to go to white people and white Americans and say, give up your power because you guys have had power for so long. Give it up, you know? And uh, I just don't think it's that easy. I think I when you have power, it's, it's that. And I think for us, like for the minorities, for the ethnic folks, for the black, for the Latinos, for the Asians, you know, for, 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 for Native Americans, I think it's really like we don't realize how hard it is to give up power when you have power, right? Now, it is right. I do think there needs to be a giving up of power. I'm not saying that that's wrong. But I think one of the sides that we don't see is actually it's not easy to give up power when you have it. But I don't know if we've ever, I mean, I don't ever remember kind of facing the whole racial justice component by saying, I don't know. I mean, I guess you're right that we are demanding that white people in that particular instance give up power, but I just don't ever remember framing it in that way. Like it was always framed in the sense of we need justice and equality, not necessarily white people give up your power, but essentially for the equality to happen, that is what actually needs to happen. That's exactly what has to happen. Exactly. Give up the power. So I guess even just framing it in that way um, is interesting to me because I've just never really looked at it in the sense of it's directly translates to white people or those in power giving it up. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with white folks, you know, in our church, you know, um, outside of our church and just in general. And I think there's a, a general sentiment that I've learned over these conversations. That's why it's important to talk to people. And I think there is this, uh, it's not just that they don't want to give up power, but they're afraid of what will happen because it's so unpredictable of what will their lives look like when they do give up the power so that there could be greater equality in this country. Now, I'm not, of course, there needs to be equality amongst all because, right, we're all created in the Imago Dei. Like, theologically, let's not even just talk about what's happening politically, but theologically, we're all creating the image of God. So we are all creating the Imago Dei. Therefore, there is deep equality, right? Uh, Galatians 3.28, right? There's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. You know, slave nor free because we're all one in Jesus Christ. There is equality there. But I am just, I think what, what the reality is that when somebody has the power or when a people group has power, it's not so easy to think that it's, it's easy for them to give it up so easily for the sake of equality. Because there's a fear. There is an inherent fear of what will happen. And also, I think what we don't realize, that there's a loss that they have to go through that there's actually a loss that they may have to grieve that I don't think we've really talked about when we have discussions, particularly about racial justice. And I think when, when you know, it's easy for me, it's easy, I think, for anyone who is ethnic to tell white people that there needs to be equality, there needs to be justice, of course. I mean, this is all right. But I think what we don't see is this other side. And I don't, I don't think, you know, when we, when we, and sometimes what we do then is we demonize some white folks. And I think, what the challenge is with some with some white folks, not all, but with some, is that they're just they don't know. Like it's it's is as they surrender the power, they don't know. There's a sense of fear. There's a sense of loss, and just they don't know what's going to happen to the world. And and uh, it's already threatening to them, I believe, when they start to live in communities in the United States where they are slowly becoming the minority. And when you've been in the majority your entire life. I just don't get. I just don't think it's so easy then to all of a sudden just shift and say, okay, I can kind of be in the minority. And I think that's the conversation that I that I kind of want to have today is that I don't think it's easy. It's it's that easy to just tell somebody to give up their power because when you give up power, 
there is a loss that I think we might, I think a better way to maybe t- address this is that we have to, I think, when we talk about racial justice and equality, I think we really have to give white folks an opportunity to grieve the loss of their power. I don't know. That's just, this is just me thinking wildly outside the box. But I don't know. What do you think, Sua? I mean, I think, like I said earlier, it's interesting to frame it in the way of like, white people need to give up the power because the way I've seen a lot of justice um, campaigns and like movements work is more like reclaiming our power. Um, So I'm just trying to think about how that works. You know, if, is there a way if white people are not willing to give up power? Because like I said earlier, I think there's a component where people in power don't even realize they have power. And I think with racial um, kind of context that happens a lot where that's why the whole idea of privilege or white privilege or racial privilege is so triggering for especially a lot of white individuals, because I think their instinct is to say, what privilege? Like I had a really hard life. Like, what are you trying to say that I'm automatically lucky or fortunate or privileged because I'm white? And that's exactly what it is. But I think it's the instinct is to deny that that even exists. And so then it's much harder to then try to relinquish this power that people are saying you have when you don't even realize that you actually have it. Like I know there was like this one Instagram quote that was circulating widely uh, about how if you've been in privilege for so long, equality seems like um, injustice or equality seems like oppression. Because if you've been somebody who's been in having the benefiting from the um, the benefits of privilege for so long, when somebody says now we're going to make things equal, you feel like you're actually being oppressed because your yep. power is being taken away. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the whole point uh, that I'm trying to make is I think a lot of times people in power don't even realize that yep. they have the power. And the first step into to even being able to consider relinquishing it is to really acknowledge that, wow, I've, I have had these privileges or I've, I have had this power. But I guess my question to you would be, what is the motivation? Like, are you just specifically pointing this to like Christians? Because sometimes I wonder, like, what is the motivation for somebody who is not in a Christian framework or a Christian individual to even relinquish the power. It's like power is great. Why would they want to relinquish it? You know, if you're the CEO and you want to make all the shots yourself, why even bother doing that? Like, I like it just the way it is. Like, why do I feel the need to have to give that? Because it's, it's good. Like quote unquote, this arbitrary thing of good, like why should they even do that? Well, I, I mean, that's an important question. And, and I think one of the major reasons why they should do that is because in order, I think, overall, like whether it's an organization, whether it's relationships with people group, when we mature as people, uh, power has to change in a relationship. So let's just give a very easy example of this, like a parent. Mm-hmm. And we know this. Like right now, your kids are small. Mm-hmm. right? You guys have a lot of power over their lives. Yeah. But if your child turns 21 or 30 or 40 years old and you still have that same kind of power, Mm -hmm. that's unhealthy. Right. You guys have not matured in your relationship with each other to the point where now you've gained some trust and you're saying, all right, you have power now to make your decisions. I'm going to let you do it. And you know as well as I do, particularly immigrant families, you know particularly as well as I do, Sua, that there are some immigrant relationships, and this is not just with immigrants, but other relationships where the mother or the father has way too much power in their adult kids' lives. Mm -hmm. 
And they control them. They literally control them because they've never transferred the power over. The relationship has never matured or maturated in a place where the power needs to be transferred. And now you give the power to your child and now they're adults and they can make decisions. It's just sometimes for people, uh, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. And I think, you know, one of the examples that I can give for myself is that, you know, I planted Metro Community Church. I have a lot of power. I have I had a lot of power at the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're a church planter, when you're the founder, nobody started this. You're the oldest member in the church, no matter what. And I really called all the shots. I, I you know, it's it's whatever I felt God was leading us. That would that would be the way we would go, so on and so forth. We're 18 years old now. We're not little babies anymore. We're we're. We're 18, just think about we're an old enough church where we've grown up and we've matured. Our elder board in the past, you know, would really follow my lead in everything. Staff hires, different things, different decisions that I feel like was really important for me to do within our church. And uh, that was kind of like, you know, in the past. But now as the church is growing and mature, I have to be willing to release my power and just sort of just be a vote in my elder board rather than be the one who controls and says, hey, you know, I'm the senior pastor, so let's just go this way, right? And I'm telling you, it's not that easy. It's hard. It's hard to give up your power. Like, I've had this power, and now I have to give it up. It's, it sounds like, I guess, from people sitting, like, on the other side, no, you should do that. It shouldn't be that hard. It's a lot harder than you think it is. It's a lot harder than you think it is. And here's the, the if we can just get to the race dilemma, if we can. I think evangelical Christians, particularly the white evangelical Christians, I don't, I, you know, I know some of them want to hold on to power. I, I, you know, we're just human beings. But I think a lot of them are, are they're just, they don't know how to process this stuff when they hear Christians. Like, I just talked about my denomination, my tribe. We have meetings every year, and we talk about racial justice. We talk about equality. You know, uh, we talk about white privilege and things like that. And I realized within the context, within within uh, the white evangelicals, a part of our denomination, the pastors and the leaders, there is a sense of fatigue. Also, just not, uh, I think, in an, a... An, an awareness of what they're going through in their own lives. And it's not that they don't want to give up their power. I think they're okay with it, but I just don't think that we're, we're helping them to realize that this is a loss. We recognize this is a loss for you, that you're going to have to grieve. But it's Christ-like. That's why we do it. We do it. Why? Because God would want us to do this. Because in heaven, right, all tongues, all nations will come together and this is what the gospel is about. The gospel is about, when you look at Ephesians 2, uh, 11 through 20, it says that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, so that he could destroy the walls of hostilities between Jews and Greeks. And I think that's the reason why we do it. But I think what we have to do is we have to help people understand that it's not easy to give up power. And there is a loss that we have to grieve for those who have the power so that we can give it in a very Christ-like way without having any regret, remorse, or worry about what might happen in the future. I don't know. I don't know if I'm even making sense. Do I sound crazy, Sua? No, I don't think you sound crazy. I think for me, though, I'm trying to wrap my head around it because the, the, the most frustrating conversations I've had with, you know, with white people about race have never been about my, my refusal or inability to understand that this is difficult for them, but it's always been frustrating because they refuse to acknowledge that there is something. And so if any person who, you know, white or anything, you know, any other race said to me, I understand why this is necessary. It's just 
a really big adjustment for me and I'm processing it and I'm, it's, I'm sorry, but it's, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I would ever, I mean, I would like to believe I would never be like, how dare you? Like this needs to be yeah. happening right now. And yeah, there is an urgency to it. Obviously yeah. there's an urgency yeah. to it because people are dying and it's impacted people's actual everyday lives. But simultaneously, I'm not naive enough to think that these things happen overnight or something, a way a person has lived um, or seen themselves all their lives will change in a second just because like they have this, um, you know, revelation mentally. Yeah. But I think that's why it's like, are we, are we saying is, I mean, I guess my question is, is the urgency of it or like the really strong um, nature of the words that we use to describe racial justice is this making people who are in power feel like they don't have the space to kind of grieve it. Like, do you think, think that so. is what's happening? I think that's what I'm saying. And, and I, I think, I think part of this is that if there could be a new way to maybe talk about racial justice in the evangelical Christian world, um, sometimes I think, um, both sides come off very strong, right? Mm -hmm. I think the side, you know, the white evangelicals can come off very strong. Um, and then, you know, the ethnic evangelical Christians come off very strong. And, you know, I think sometimes there's a place for that, but I do feel like there needs to be a recognition from those who are not in power, let's say the ethnic Christians, um, that this is a major loss. This is a major sacrifice we're asking of our white brothers and sisters in Christ. This is nothing small. This isn't an easy thing to do. It's the right thing to do, but this is huge. This is a huge sacrifice that we're asking of them to do. And I think we have to give them a place to grieve that and to realize and knowing that it's okay. It's not a bad thing. You're not a sinful person when you're struggling to wanting to give it away. That it's not a bad thing to grieve the loss of the power that you've had, but, you're, but it's worth it because that's exactly what God and Jesus would want you to do. And I think if we can frame it like that, I think the white evangelicals might get more uh, might get more connected to what we're trying to do and, uh, and get connected to more of the, the, the ethnic Christians and really join in the cause and really making racial justice a part of the gospel movement. Because right now, I think what the white evangelical movement is doing is they're just saying it's very political. It's a political issue. And I think one of the reasons why they say that, it's part of it, it's defensive. But when you read the gospels and when you look at what Jesus Christ came to do, when you think about what heaven's gonna be, there's no way you can circumvent Racial justice, it's a big part. And, uh, and I think part of this is that I think we have to be willing to frame it a little differently, but also acknowledge the fact that this isn't easy and let give white people some time to grieve, but to also respect that this is not an easy thing for you to do. And I think it, it sort of clicked for me because I'm realizing even in my own life and um, like as a lead pastor and the founder of Metro Community Church, it's not easy. I wish I could say it's easy. That when you have power, it's not easy to surrender it and just become one of just one vote out of a group of people. It's just not easy. It's, it's a lot harder when you've had the power. And I think that kind of has helped me to kind of reframe this. And I think if we're going to, if we're going to um, do something special amongst the Christian community here in this country and do our best to see if we could, um, you know, destroy, alleviate racial, you know, ra racism in this country, uh, it's not going to happen, I think, if we just tell white evangelicals, you got to change, you got to change, this is, this is what you have to do, and, 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 and just kind of, you know, not acknowledge the fact that what we're asking them to do is it the right thing, and they got to do it, but we, we're asking them to give up 
power, and it's just not easy to give up power. And uh, and I think that we have to maybe look at it and consider it from that that perspective, and also maybe figure out a way where we can um, help the process so that you know so that white evangelicals are more open to giving up their power. Well, I'm gonna try to kind of be the devil's advocate here, though, because I yep. think. And I'm saying this because I know where your heart is. And I know in the past, actually, this is a big detour for you because you've actually been on the camp of like no ifs and buts we needed yesterday, like push out anybody who disagrees. So like I I realize actually somebody who doesn't know the trajectory of how you've stood with racial justice might hear today's episode and be like, yo, this guy's so soft on racial justice. Yeah, yeah, But actually, this is like a complete 180 from where you were, I want to say, five, 10 years ago, where you were literally like, get out of my face if you don't want racial justice. (laughs) Um, And I think probably even literal, possibly. So um, I just want to clarify that that's why I... I'm not getting like super frustrated about this conversation because I know that this is you breathing compassion into something that you felt so strongly yeah. about where you almost had zero tolerance for anybody who felt otherwise that moment that you talk about it. Yeah. Um, but I do think racial justice, especially in the context of white and black people is really complicated because it's been 400 years of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there's a sense from, people who are black who are like, but how much longer do they need to like come to grips with this? Because our people are dying. You know, our people are getting shot. Our people are getting murdered. Like our people are living in poverty. There's mortality rates that are, you know, all sorts of things that are worse for black people in America. And so there is that, I mean, it's it's really hard to kind of reconcile with that urgency that they're feeling because this is their everyday lives. And it's like, yes, Grieving is fine, but how much longer do, you know, because yeah. how much longer does this need to go on and how, what do we need to do? And I think this has always been yeah. an interesting thing um, for me as an Asian person, because when I look at um, this whole framework of race in America um, with white and, white and black people, I hear a lot of black friends say things like, I just don't have the energy or the stamina to explain race to another white person. Like, and it's kind of like, why? Like, why is this my job to have to be vulnerable and explain to you how this affects me for you to open your eyes and see it? Because it's not like black people in America created the racism problem. It's white people in America who created the race problem. And so why do black people have to be the ones who have to be proactive and fix it? And I completely understand that uh, because there's a fatigue there, you know, because after a while you keep telling people, this is happening to me. This is happening to my life. And for then the white person or Asian person even to be like, I feel like this might be in your head. Or, you know, honestly, Obama made race way worse in America by talking about it. Like, this is a kind of response that you hear a lot. It's so demoralizing and dehumanizing that they're diminishing and um, almost kind of doubting your own personal testimony or experience. And I always wondered if there's something interesting about the Asian person in this scenario to be able to kind of bring that. And now I bring a second topic up about the power. I don't think we even even need to look at white people in the race dynamic to talk about the relinquishing of power. Asian people in America have power. Um, Asian people as a race in America, yes, we are not somebody who is white and has white privilege, but there is a clear Asian privilege when you look at the dynamics of race. And if you look at the fact that a lot of Asians do not align themselves with minorities, but instead have historically always aligned themselves with white majority. I think there's a clear picture there of what power looks like and what it looks like when you don't want to 
be powerless or what you want, what, how you want power for your own people. Um, even when the whole, um, black lives matters movement started, the majority of Asian people align themselves with white people. You know, I remember, um, this is going way back, um, not way back, but like maybe nine years now. Yeah. Like, do you remember there was a Asian police officer who shot, mm-hmm. um, a black yep. person in New York, in Brooklyn. Yep. Yep. Um, I think his name was Peter Liang or something yep. like that. Yep. And, um, and then I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but basically they gave him a harsher, I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't even like he was actually sentenced. It was like, it basically, there was something that happened where it looked like white people, white officers had gotten off easy. And this Asian guy was the scapegoat where he ended mm. up having like something harsher. And sorry, I don't remember the exact details, but all yeah. I remember is the number of emails that I got in my inbox the next day from my Asian friends asking me to sign this petition saying that he should not be liable for what he did because all the white officers were also not liable for what they did. And this was extremely shocking to me because it was like, to me, them saying, we don't want, like, instead of saying there should be justice for what this person did, the immediate reaction from a lot of my white friends was, we also want white privilege, just like the other white officers, and we want to get off free, even though I just killed an innocent black man. Yeah. Um, and so the alignment there was, we also want power and white privilege. It was not justice should be served, right? And so I feel like we don't even need to look as an Asian person that yeah. far at white. Of course, the macro level, yeah, there's like all that dynamic. But I think as Asians, we also are very reluctant to give up the power that comes with being an Asian. You know, I mean, does that make yeah. sense? No, it does. It does. Let yeah. me just try to answer your, your your original kind of your your statement and your question that you asked me. And you know, I think when when you know when you're in a fight, um, let's just let's just break it down. Like you know, when you're when you see like a professional fight, there's a strategy that you have to do to win, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the fight um, on racial justice. I'm 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 talking about in the church only. I'm not talking about in the world. Right, I'm actually right. more hopeful. Uh, with the world about racial justice than I am with the Great. church. <laughs> That's so terrible. I mean, but statistically, it's true. I mean, you can't you can't say. I mean, it's it's so disparaging when you think about it. Uh, the church is far behind where the world is. I mean, you think about like every Fortune 500 company has a racial diverse chief diversity officer. Mm-hmm. I'm more hopeful about folks in the world who don't profess their followers of Jesus um, to maybe you know, bring it forth further. Right. But I don't think, um, it's gonna, I don't think racism will ever be dwarfed in this country unless the white evangelicals are embracing it. You know, I don't. And when you think about how Christians have done it, I think we've taken on the cues from how people do it in the world, but I think we're losing the fight and we're losing bad. And um, I think the only way we're going to have victory over this is that we got to change our strategy. And, you know, you know me, Sua. You know what I did in the past. And you know the things that I've said to our, you know, uh, Asian people. You know what I've said to our white folks at our church about if you can't get on this, you know, on, 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 on what Metro is about with racial justice. And we were talking about racial justice before any church really, really, really talked about it. Um, any, any church that's not black. <laughs> that any church that's not black. Right, yeah. right. Um, and so, you know, you know, I mean, that was really it. But I'm just thinking we're losing the fight. And I, I think if we really want to eliminate racism in this country, we need the white evangelical Christians. We need them. We can't we right. cannot do this without them. We need them to join us in this in this battle. 
And if we can do that, I think we have a great opportunity to 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 end racial uh, racism in this country in a macro level. But the white evangelicals, I think, are one of the biggest problems why we can't. And part of the reason I think it is is because we're not helping them to realize that we got to figure out a new strategy to fight this. And I just think using the world strategy is not working with them. Uh, they're finding themselves more more distance from this talk. And, uh, and they don't want to talk about it. I think we have to acknowledge and help them to realize that, yes, this is an important thing to do. This is a gospel issue. This is not something that we do because it's, it's what's happening in our world today. No, we do it because it's a gospel issue. And the other thing is that I think we just have to come up with a new strategy. I think one of the strategies is that realizing that and letting them know this is not an easy thing for you because you have the power and recognizing that this law, this is a loss and that you might need to grieve it. And I kind of tested that out. I was speaking at, a, at our annual meeting with our denomination. It's a group of, a, you know, all the pastors in our denomination are, are there. And I shared this, and I think it really resonated with the white evangelicals in our denomination because I don't think they've ever heard somebody who is ethnic actually say it in that perspective. And I just think we got to figure out a new strategy. we got to figure out a new strategy and how we're going to get white evangelicals open to the reality that this is right. God wants us to do this. I got I to, gotta, this is a loss. People understand how hard this is. I need to grieve it, but then now I can release it and give it and let go of it and really do the work that I need to do to grow an understanding of what racism does and, and grow in racial justice. And I, I just think we need a new strategy because a strategy is not working in the church. It's, it's making it worse, in my opinion. I mean, I think you're right. Obviously, it's not, it's a real physical battle, but at the same time, it's a spiritual thing, which is why I yeah. think it's so insidious and it keeps evolving because, um, yeah. It, it's so hard to pin down, right? It's yeah. not something that yeah. is a physical thing you can just kind of grab and kill. It just keeps morphing and it keeps morphing. spreading, and it's really, yep. really difficult to pin it down. Yep. Um, but you know, you know, it's as you're speaking, it does remind me of that. Did you ever, ever did your parents ever make you read like Aesop's fables? No, my parents never made Aesop's me read anything. Are? My parents Do you never know what Aesop's. No, fables I don't even are? know what that okay, is. Okay, well, I, anyway, I am not. It's a I am not of as stories. As you collection of stories to try to teach you a lesson. And there's this one yeah. story about um, a ma uh, the sun and the wind having a battle. So the wind challenges the sun and it's like, hey, look at that guy wearing his jacket. Let's have a contest to see who can take it off, take the jacket mm. off first. Obviously the wind is like, you know, kind of in a more superior place to do something yeah. like that. So he goes, the son's like, fine, let's do it. So then the wind starts blowing like really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And instead of making the guy's jacket blow away, he starts grabbing it even harder. Like he's holding onto it even more. Mm -hmm. So then he tries and tries and the wind's blowing, blowing and the guy's grabbing for his life. He doesn't succeed. And the son's like, watch this. So he starts shining really brightly. And of course the guy willingly takes off his jacket. So even though at first sight you were like the wind's going to win because how the heck is the sun going to make the jacket blow away? The strategy was different because when you try yeah. to take something away from people, yeah. they hold on to it even more tightly. Yeah. It's like my mom used to give this advice to other moms who did not like their daughters or sons dating people that they didn't approve of. My mom's advice would always be, be like, don't tell them like don't fight them because what that's going to make them do is hold on to each other even harder exactly like, even yeah. if they had bro would have broken up like pretty quickly the fact yeah. that you're going against them gives them a common enemy and now they're just grabbing onto each other even worse because they don't want to give up power yeah and i think 
and that's what I'm thinking about as you're saying. It's like, maybe you're right. Like, we need a different strategy. We need Not a different really strategy. Sure what that looks like, to be honest. I mean, you know, no, I don't. I mean, I just think it's, 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 you know, when we talk to our Christian tribe, I can only speak to the church community. I cannot speak to any other community because that's the community that we're involved in. I think we just have to really recognize that this is uh, for the ethnic people. I think we have to realize that we're not asking white Christians to do something that's easy or that's small. Uh, we have to realize that we're making a very big ask of them. And because it's such a big ask, it's a necessary ask. We have to um, do it. But just recognizing and saying, listen, I don't know what it's like to have power. I don't know what it's like to be in the majority. Now all of a sudden feel that there's a threat. Now I got to give this up. Like, I don't know. I don't know that. I certainly have, you know, a certain respect and, uh, you know, take the time that you need to grieve this, but I hope that you can give it away and, and it'll, it, it won't, the issue with, I think, Sua, when a lot of, when you say, when you talk to some white people and they say, well, racism doesn't exist in this country, I think those are defense mechanisms that they put up mm. to not deal with it. And white Christians do the same thing. They have defense mechanism. And what I'm trying to figure out is how do we bring those down? How do we destroy the walls, the defensive walls that white evangelicals have put up where they have detached themselves from talking about this as a gospel mandate? And I don't, I don't think it's going to happen by just saying, how much more do we have to suffer? Look what you guys have done, you know, and, and just keep pointing the finger at the sins and all that stuff. I just don't know if that's going to be an effective way to win the fight. I think part of this is acknowledging, because I think there are actually good-hearted white Christians that that are just scared. They don't really know what to do, and they don't know how to process this in the right way. And I think just just helping them to realize this is a big ask. We know it is. And uh, we need you to understand that you can have a season to grieve this. So then while you grieve, then you can give it away. But then when you can give it away, it's one of the most Christ-like things you can ever do. And uh, and I think, I, I think that could potentially help and having conversations like that and, uh, and potentially help. And then the other thing I think, this, this, this is the other thing that I think, Sue, if we're really going to do this, we need to get white evangelical pastors that are woke, that know racial justice, that understand the, the, the gospel mandate of, of what racial justice is. We got to get them to stop going into the hood and planting. Are you allowed to churches. say into the hood? Are you into the hood. <laughs> stop going into urban cities <laughs> and planting ethnic churches. Really? I mean, because that's what many woke white pastors do. They end up going to urban areas and they plant ethnic Which churches. Which actually makes no sense because those people Which, are the mo most keenly aware of racial and, 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 injustice. Right. And so when you think about this, how is that not another form of colonization? Right? Like, I mean, these, these are some of the conversations I have with some, some church planters that are very woke about this stuff. I think the, the, the greatest challenge or the Nineveh that God would call woke white pastors mm -hmm. Go into the white suburban yeah, areas and plant white churches where a part of your discipleship is racial justice. Like, go mm -hmm. deep into that. That's how I think we're going to win the battle in this. And we have to stop getting, we have to stop encouraging woke white pastors to go into urban cities and plant ethnic churches. I, I know why they're doing that. I get it. But that's the part of now they have to make their sacrifice. You got to go to your own tribe. And you have to be willing to start a church, a movement where you can connect with white folks and really teach them the gospel mandate of this.
And I think that's one of the um, greatest strategies that we can do. And it, I, I think yeah. what white pastors don't realize is one of the best ways to reach the young people, because the non-believing white people, if your church is not about racial justice, they're not going to be a part of it because it's such a big part of their lives. Justice and equality is such a big part of, of um, non-Christians' lives, these young kids today. It's, it's everything. It's, that's why I have hope about the future of our country because they're so, they're so adamant about it. I think it's, it's a great way to reach the non-believing young Gen Zers today. And, uh, and I don't think we really fully understand that. So, yeah, so I don't know. I think that's one strategy in how we think about doing this because no matter how much I try to go and plant a church in a white suburban area, uh, it's not going to work. And I can only say so much. And I think the way that we need is we need white prophetic pastors that are willing to make the sacrifice, go into their Nineveh, and serve the white Christian community and disciple them on racial justice. I think that is how this thing is going to move forward. Um, but at the same time, for us ethnic folks to realize that this is important, that we need to understand that this is not an easy ask that we're asking of our white evangelicals. It's a hard ask. So we give them a time to grieve the loss, and then hopefully they can give it and surrender it. And that's, that's sort of, you know, I don't have all the things thought out. This is just something I was thinking about. But uh, as I have conversations with people about this, that's the side I think we're not talking about much. And I think we need to come up with a different strategy to fight this because I don't think, I think we're losing so bad right now. And I think white evangelicals are more and more um, just don't want to talk about this. They don't even want to bring it up. They have too many walls up that they don't want to do. I was talking to a, a white pastor, a megachurch pastor, which had a very honest conversation. And he said to me, and his church is like probably 90% white. He said, Peter, this is going to take me years to teach our church about racial justice. Years. I can't just go up there one day and do that. This is going to take years. And I said, well, that's great. Let's start. Let's start. But mm -hmm. it's such a challenge with white evangelicals. And I would say that a lot of white evangelical pastors that are woke about racial justice are deathly afraid to do this I with mean, their own tribe. I can't, I don't blame them. Um, I don't because blame them I remember very vividly, I mean, not as well as you probably do, but I remember viv very vividly what happened when we first started talking about it. Um, I also remember the reaction from Asian yeah. congregation members in our church, yes. and it wasn't all positive. Nope. You know, there was a lot of pushback yeah. from our Asian congregation members, which is also kind of interesting because you would think if you're a minority, you understand racism, like you shouldn't yeah. be reacting this way. But there was a lot of pushback from yeah. also, um, I would say more pushback, in my opinion, from Asian congregation yes, members. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, that, so that was that was actually very interesting. But like you said, yeah, that was in a way, I feel like that was our Nineveh, that was your Nineveh, because our church, even though it is multi-ethnic at that point, especially was a lot more yeah. leaning towards Asians. Yeah. Um, and um, it was a very, very difficult, much more difficult than I ever would have imagined to broach the subject of race. Um, with Asian congregation members. But before we finish, because it's not technically yeah. an episode on race, it's an episode on yeah. power. Power, yep. I did want to ask you, um, and this might bring you bring us into a bit of a longer podcast, but what is, so I wanted to spin it all a little bit and say not race, but with gender or sex, what is it like for you to be a male pastor um, in a world where feminism and the, you know all of these um, 
female power kind of dynamics are like really surfacing. I mean, everywhere I go, it's impossible for me not to see things that are very positive for girls. Like just the other day, I went to Target and they had all these shirts that said like the future is female. And I kind of mm -hmm. wonder like, what does that feel like? Because I don't know what it's like to be a man. So when I, a mother of two girls, see this kind of empowering messaging for girls that says like the future is female, it's like empowering, right? But sometimes yes. I wonder like, what is that like if you're a man? Suddenly the world is flipping upside down and all the messaging I hear about men is don't be a don't be toxic. Well, don't engage in toxic masculinity. Don't be patriarchal, like give up your power. Like me too movement is happening. Like you guys are bad. So what does that feel like for a man? And especially a male pastor when there's a lot of like talk also about like ma male pastors abusing their privileges in many different ways. Um, we need more women in the leadership. Like, is this, is this a power that's hard for you to give up or is this not because you've just been so entrenched in like justice for so long? Uh, if I'm going to be very honest, uh, it's not something I struggle with. Um, Why uh, though? I would power. Say, yeah, I would say before um, I really understood racial justice i understood gender justice before racial justice but that didn't mean that i was further along in that sense but you know when i was in seminary uh, it was really important um, if i wrote like you know man or he in a paper at fuller they would fail you what did you have to write we oh you know okay. one you know you know I, I couldn't use the the masculine vernacular in describing human race okay um, you know, and talking more about it with professors and, and talking through it, I realized how how men have really held back women from doing ministry because they had different plumbing from men. <laughs> and we had, been, you know, I mean, when you really think about it, it's 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 pretty, I mean, at least for me, it just seemed to be so ridiculous that you, like God has you're creating the image of God and God has gifted you, but you can't do what God has called you to do because you don't have a penis. Uh, for me, I just felt like that was so not of God. And when you look at the Bible, I mean, I know there's some passages in scripture in, you know, pastoral epistles where Paul talks about women shouldn't have authority over man. And you know, we can get into that, you know, one, one other day, but I mean, that word authority is not the word that Paul uses, like the authority that God has is that God has over us, mm -hmm. which is the Greek word exousia, which is the healthy kind of authority. Um, the authority that Paul uses in the Greek in those epistles is really like the authority of like dynamite, you know, like, like destructive authority. Mm -hmm. And back in the church, one of the things you have realized is that the early church, the church would not be in the church if it wasn't for women. Mm -hmm. Women flocked to the church. Mm -hmm. The reason why, because in the early church, first century, first, second, third century, the church was the only institution where women had a chance. Women served in leadership. Right, right. And so what was happening was that these women weren't being, some of these women, in, 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 especially in the church of Corinth, weren't being discipled well, and they were, just, they were really destroying the church. And that's when Paul, out of that contingent situation, said a woman should not have authority over a man in the church and so on and so forth. And so those are some of the passages that we studied in seminary. But then when you look at like the Old Testament, I mean, you look at Deborah, you know, mm -hmm. a judge, you look at Esther, I mean, God using them to save and lead a nation. You know, God didn't say, wait a minute, because you have different plumbing, you can't do it. And so for me, it was something that was really uh, something that I knew, but I think it was something that I grew in much quicker uh, in my own life because I just studied that within seminary because I come from a very reformed, mm -hmm. um, conservative tradition. Many Koreans, I think, do. Yeah. 
And so that really opened me up. So I think for me, if I'm going to just be very honest, it's not hard for me, um, you know, because there was a point where most of our elder board were women. There weren't men. We had one guy and then everyone else were women on the elder board. Um, you know, we have a staff that's very diverse gender wise, um, you know, and stuff like that. And so for me, I think part of this is that because I am a man and I have the power that I have to be willing to surrender it. And part of my job I see is that I have to do my best to see gifted women and to make sure that they have a place to lead in, in the church that I lead and, uh, and stuff. And if God would ever call me to leave so that a woman could take over the church, then so be it, you know, in that way. So I don't know if it was ever that hard for me, um, you know, and, uh, and so a struggle for me within the church. And, you know, I, and I specifically chose a denomination when I was looking for a denomination that really believed in women in ministry. I would not be a part of a denomination that did not believe in that. And so that's why I was a part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And that was one of the first questions I asked. I said, well, do they believe in women in ministry? And they said, yeah, they do. Absolutely. And so, and, and the denomination does. So anyway, so for me, I don't think it was ever that hard, but I think there were definitely sexist tendencies in me. And you know that, Sue, all right? Because you work with me. I still had a lot of that stuff and I had to unlearn. I'm still unlearning it. Um, but yeah, but in terms of working with women, um, um, letting them lead, letting them have authority in the church, it's not something that I, today, it's not something that I struggle with. Mm. Yeah. So it's not something like it's hard for me. Uh, in that way. I think for me, uh, when I talked about giving up power, it wasn't that I'm giving up power to a group of women, but I'm just giving up power to a group of people, women, men, that a power that I had. And, uh, and it was just, and it's not easy. It's hard. And uh, it's challenging. It really, you know, self-denial is one of the greatest things in how we can grow in our discipleship in Jesus Christ, but it is so incredibly hard to go through it. And uh, if you ever connect with a real good spiritual mentor, they will tell you how important self-denial is. And, uh, and I think this is part of it, you know, and, and in life that we all have to find ways where we can grow in self-denial. And I think if you have power today, whether it be in, you know, whether it be in your homes, whatever it might be, if you're a mom or a dad and you have too much power, your kids are adults and you still have so much power over their lives, I, I think it's time for you to mature um, and for you to grow in your relationship with God and to surrender that, whatever it might be, because you know power is destructive um, if we hold on to it, and if we're the only ones that have all of it in a relationship for a long period of time, we have to be willing to surrender in order for a relationship to mature. In anything, uh, power has to be shared in order for there to be health in any type of relationship. And if one person has all the power. I think that's a very unhealthy relationship. So over time it needs, and I think it's just, you just look at a relationship with a parent, with a kid. In the beginning, the parent has all the power and they need to, right? But overall, eventually what happens is that in order for a relationship to be healthy in that relationship with a parent and a child is that there has to be power given away. And you know, I have adult kids now, so it's mm -hmm. like my daughter Christina is 21. She's going to be 21 years old in a month. And she has all the power to her life now. She asks me for advice, but I don't tell her what to do anymore. Mm -hmm, I can't. Mm -hmm. She's an adult now, like, give me a break. Like, I can't be like, hey, do this, do that. I have no input on who she decides to date, who date she wants to go on. Like, I don't have any of that. She, now, if she comes and says, dad, I have, a, I have to ask you for some advice, I am so happy to give her that sure. advice. But if I said to her, Christina, you need to bring the guy over here, I need to give you approval before you go on a date. 
right? Christina, you need to bring that guy over here and I need to prove this guy whether you should marry him or not. Uh, Christina, you need to let me know what job you're interviewing for and I will tell you what job you need to pick. Like that is just an unhealthy right, relationship. Right. That dynamic of power has never been transferred and it needs to be transferred in order for me to have a good relationship with her. And I just think in any relationship, and listen, this was, it came through sin, right? When you think about race and things like that. But, you know, I think it, it, it's important to, to let white Christians know that you have the power, but now it's important to give it up. But, you, but it's not easy. It comes at a great cost and a great loss. So grieve. We understand. But uh, we hope that you can do the right thing because this is what God is calling us to do. So I don't know. I think things like that is going to be important. And, uh, and maybe that'll add a, uh, maybe a spark for people to, to, to address this in the church in a different way as opposed to just kind of you know, saying, you got to change, you got to change, you guys got all the power and look mm-hmm. at all the terrible things that are happening in the world. I just think we get, people just get defensive when they're just saying, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's your people. You guys are always wrong, 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 wrong. And I just think it's not the right place or the right strategy, it's not working, so we gotta figure something else out. I feel like as you're talking, it's like making me, so I was listening to this other podcast, um, our competitor with like a million subscribers. <laughs> Direct competitor. Oh yeah, they're, they're really our competitors there. <laughs> but he was talking, one, um, one of the people who were on the podcast was talking about how um, suicide rates for the elderly is extremely high. Yeah. Um, and the reason why he thinks, because he was a hospital chaplain, and he was saying how he thinks one of the reasons why um, suicide rates for the elderly is so high is because they're losing all of their idols. Yes. So all of the idols that they yes. have based their identity on, the power that they had, yeah. um, which is idolatry, right? Because you're yeah. saying that's what's most important to me. Yep. They're losing it, whether it's yep. their job, which gave yep. them power on identity, yep. their health, yep. which gave them power on identity, their beauty. If you're a yep. woman who has yep. been very beautiful, you're losing yep. that, yep. your health, um, your, your, wife or husband Uh, sometimes who you've depended on for your identity and i feel like you're losing all of these things and sometimes you're even like cognitive abilities which is so much power you Uh, lose and that's why they don't have anything to live for anymore they don't know who they are and i think as you're speaking it's making me realize like power is so intricately linked with our sense of identity and who we are and if and i think this is corroborated by the fact that a lot of white evangelicals apparently they did a study and they they overwhelmingly felt like i hope i'm not quoting this wrong like being an american is like almost just as important as being christian yeah (laughs) and what does being an american mean to them it's being white yep you know and i think it's identity it's the power and the identity that's so inextricably linked right Um, and i think um yeah i'm just thinking about like how, wow, like we really need to know who we are before God in order for us to be able to relinquish these things willingly. Because if we don't know who we are and we don't know where we get our value and we don't know what really gives us power in life, which is being God's beloved children, we are not going to be able to let go of these things because that's what we think gives us value and gives us identity, Mm. you know? And I think if we keep reminding people of that simultaneously while talking about the racial things we can't also just talk about the racial tensions or the injustice because if people are not being reminded who they are every sunday or every time you speak to them like you are god's children you are loved just as you are you have value just as you are before you do anything they're not going to be able to give it up because that's who they think they are that's who they think without that they're nothing yeah you know and so um simultaneously giving those two messages, I think, maybe is the strategy we go with. Yeah, and and I'm just going to end with this. You know, power is very destructive, 
All right, power can be good. I think the only the only being that can handle power is God. Mm. Uh, we were never meant to have power, and so if I can just speak to the white evangelicals, if this is okay, um, I've said a lot about you guys in this podcast, but God wants you to let go and release your power. But he doesn't want you to just lose it. He wants you to grow not in power, but he wants you to grow in authority. Mm. Authority is very different from power. Power can be destructive, but authority can only we can only grow in authority when we're willing to sacrifice, when we're willing to sacrifice for a greater cause, and that's how we grow in authority, and um, and that's how and that's the. Things that, and that's what God would want us to live for. And so, if I can just share with the white evangelicals that God doesn't necessarily want you to just have zero power, He would rather have you grow in authority, but authority cannot be grown in our lives unless, we, unless we're willing to sacrifice. There's a really great story, and I'll end with this. This was many years ago, and, and I should have, you know, this, the, if this podcast has existed like eight years ago, this would have been a bit more appropriate. Now it's a little bit, it can be a little pro- polarizing. <laughs> Uh oh. <laughs> but but um, years ago in Philadelphia, there was a story where um, you know uh, there was gentrification uh, uh, that was happening, and uh, in in a bad actually no, it's not gentrification. I'm sorry. In a very wealthy suburban area, what was happening was is that uh, uh, there was a group of uh, nonprofits that wanted to build, uh, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, that wanted to build halfway houses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for people who were struggling. People got out of jail, mm-hmm. people were drug addictions, and they wanted to set these, they wanted to create these halfway homes in a really nice neighborhood rather than in an urban city where there's danger and temptation and things mm-hmm. like that with drugs and so forth. Well, that caused an uproar, an absolute uproar in the in this community, in this wealthy community. And at every board meeting, council meeting, they would always be there and they would just say, no, we can't do this, we can't do this, we can't do this. And um, and and uh, on the day when they were uh, supposed to, the council was supposed to vote, they were all going to pretty much vote no for allowing you know the halfway house to be built in this wealthy community in Philadelphia, in the Pennsylvania area. Uh, Mother Teresa was in town. This is a and true story. This is a true story. I promise, it's a true story. Because she, she, the Catholic Church reached out there. She was in town, and she came, and she went before the council, and this is what she did. She got on her knees before the council and she begged them. She said, please, would you please allow us to build this home for these kids who desperately need hope in life to have another chance? She got on her knees and begged. And you know what happened? The entire council changed their vote and they voted in favor and they built these halfway homes in these very wealthy communities. Everyone in that room, I'm sure there were people that were still against it. They had to change their heart. Why? Why? It's because Mother Teresa dedicated her entire life sacrificing for the poor and the oppressed. Could you imagine if Elon Musk came and asked to do that? Do you think the council would have had to change her heart? He's the richest man in the world. If Elon Musk said, can you please let you know, the Catholic Church build these halfway homes? Do you think the council would have been moved? Everyone would be like, Elon, you're the richest man in the world. What do you know about this? And it's not in your community. There'd be a huge uproar. Mm-hmm. But because it was Mother Teresa, she didn't have power. She had authority. She dedicated her life for the poor and the oppressed. She came and she changed the hearts of all the people there because she didn't have power. She had authority. And that's what you and I, that's what we have to live for. And, and if I can just encourage the white community, when you give up the white privilege when you give up the power 
you're growing in authority. You're growing deeper respect. People will respect you more for what you're doing. And uh, it's not an easy thing. So I just hope that that would encourage you that we are called as people to grow in authority and not to grow in power because power is destructive. Authority, what's required of it is actually sacrifice. So anyway, you thought I made that story up, didn't you? I'm going to go look it up. But I just want to say for the record, if Mother Teresa had asked me, I would give my pizza to my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) If Mother Teresa asked me, I'd give the honey butter chip to my daughter as well. All right. So it's like there (laughs) is. And that, folks, is the difference between power. Mother Teresa can ask me to do anything and there's no way I would say no to it. Because can you imagine? It's like saying no to God. All right. So she will. But look at the posture, too. I mean, if this true, is this story is correct and actually happened and not one of those like weird myths that float around well, the, the reason internet? Why this, yeah, uh, Tony Campolo shared that in, in one of his sermons, and oh, I just okay. never forgot it. And, uh, but, you know, he lives in Philadelphia. But, like, so. look at her posture. Like, yeah. she's she's on her knees. Like, she's not yeah. using her, quote-unquote, yeah. power. Yeah. She's really asking yeah. them to do it. You exactly. know, she's like the sun. Like, she's asking yeah. them to do it. Yeah. You know, she's transfer. She's actually, she's actually um, summoning their power. Yeah. Right? Like, she's not putting her power on yeah. them. So, yep. yeah, I mean, wow. that's the approach I think we need to take in trying to talk about racial justice in the church, particularly in the white evangelical church, because we can't win the war on racial justice unless the white evangelical church um, is is on board and right. we need them on board. We, we can't do this fight without them. And the thing that I, I pleaded with our denomination when I was speaking at this thing I just said, we need you. We can't do this without you. Like we are completely unable to do this. We will be impotent in doing this in this denomination. We need the white evangelical Christians and the pastors and the leaders. We need you to do this, but we understand what we're asking of you. It's not easy. It's a major ask. And uh, I think that's a better strategy as we move forward in it because we're not winning right now. We got to do better. So I don't know, but power is not easy. Whatever power you have to give up, but I hope that we can grow in authority more than power, but authority doesn't happen unless we're willing to sacrifice. So anyway, Sua, thank you for your time. Thank you. Everyone, thank you for listening. I know that this might uh, actually generate quite a bit of questions and feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Please feel free. You can, you can simply just respond on Instagram or Facebook when this is, when this episode is up, or if you want, you can go to weekpastor.org and you can definitely make a comment there. And we'd love to hear from you and get back to you if you can. All right. So thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 